Welcome to Marketing Thought Leadership, the podcast that offers insightful discussions on thought-provoking marketing topics. Here's the host of our show, marketing consultant, speaker, author, and educator, and the president of L2M Associates, Linda Popke. Hi, this is Linda Popke, and welcome to our latest episode of Marketing Thought Leadership. We're here today with David Primer, who is widely recognized as a thought leader in the area of sales and sales leadership. He's been published in the Harvard Business Review, the MIT Sloan Management Review, Forbes Entrepreneur, Inc. Magazine, and he's written a book called Sell the Way You Buy. Uh, he starts out interesting. He started his early days tinkering with test tubes and differential equations and became an award-winning research scientist. And then he's moved to leading top-performing sales teams at high-growth technology startups. Um, He has a practice called Cerebral Selling, and he's often referred to as the sales professor. So, David, welcome. Thanks for having me, Lynn. It's great to be with you here. Fantastic. So we're going to talk about marketing and selling um, and, you know, why is it different than 10 years ago, but really why is it different than four months ago? (laughs) Because here we are in the middle of a pandemic and our, our world's been turned upside down. So where we are today, what is it we need to know? What's, it certainly it seems more difficult, but why is it different than it would have been even a short while ago? Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the big thing is the situation we're living in today, people become very myopic, right? Like in times of crises, we tend to focus on what's most important, so our longevity, our families, you know, the health of our business. And so whereas before we could have potentially been in the market for all manner of, you know, solutions and, and marketing messages that could kind of, you know, breach the defenses, so to speak. Nowadays, we are hyper-focused on specific problems we're looking to solve. And so what's actually happening is it's forcing marketing organizations to get really hyper-specific about how we can help solve those specific problems so that we can break through the noise. Absolutely. And I think the problems that we have and we see may not have been even on the radar screen a few months ago. So um, you talk a lot about science. You come out of the science background. Uh, and differential equations and test tubes and all that kind of thing. How does that relate to selling? Selling seems to me to be more of an art than a science. So how does science relate to what you know about selling and marketing? Yeah, well, so my my background, you know, was was all around kind of engineering. You know, I was doing graduate work in engineering, got into sales at the turn of the dot-com boom, you know, kind of 20 years ago by accident, just like everyone else. But for me, when I think about selling, and, and marketing for that matter as well, you know, it's a system, you know, a system that has equations and variables and, you know, uh, inputs and outputs. And if you think about sales and marketing almost like a bit of an engineering problem, that's kind of how I reconcile the two. You know, when you explain or when you say something to a customer in a certain way, they get it. But then, you know, you change a couple of those variables and it, it goes over the head, they don't get it, right? Or even just, for example, the tone. So there is a ton of art selling, but there's certainly a ton of science in terms of how people process information. And that's actually something I talk a lot about in my book, Sell the Way You Buy, because the way we actually process information and the way we make decisions on a basic – I'm not talking about big ticket you know, decisions about technologies or software, but you know, what we order for lunch every day, that is governed by a set of principles and pathways that are often you know, not, not clear to us, right? Our brains are not that attuned to how we make decisions in that way. So there is quite a lot of science behind how people make decisions, and my, my focus is trying to be on marrying the two, the art and the science together. Well, that makes sense. So if we don't know why we're making decisions, um, how do we – I guess if I don't know how to make a decision, 
do you know how I'm making this decision or how do you figure that out if it's kind of something that's a little bit ambiguous and not conscious? Well, it's interesting. It's, it's not as though we don't know how we're making decisions. We do have a sense. So, for example, if I asked you to write down everything that you ate for lunch over the past month and then I started to zero in and I say, like, why did you, why'd you make that? Why'd you make that? Why'd you make that? You might say, oh, well, I was in the mood for it that day or it looked delicious or, you know, I just had a workout and so I needed some protein. Like you would come up with an explanation, right, for why mm-hmm. you decided to do that, do that thing, just like any purchase in your life. But, you know, deep down inside, it all comes down to feelings. And a lot of times when we make decisions, we, we are, the way our brains work is that we come up with all sorts of like logical constructs as to why we make decisions based on ROI and, you know, nutritional value and, you know, kind of the, the intrinsic merits of what we're buying. But at the end of the day, we're all buying feelings and emotion like 100% of the time. Um, and, and oftentimes those feelings masquerade as logic and reason. So we do always have explanations for what we do, uh, but uh, they often masquerade as logic and reason when in fact they are, um, you know, subjective feelings. And that's the part that we are often not in, to- in tune with. And that makes sense. And, and my mentor, Alan Weiss, the million-dollar consultant, has said, Logic makes people think, and emotion makes people act. So I think there, there's always some emotion underneath it. Um, so there's tricks that our mind is playing us in. It, it, I mean, we think we're being logical, but there's something behind it. So what can you tell us about kind of those things that we may not understand? And, and as a marketer, how do we kind of get beyond that? And I don't want to say manipulate it, but use it to help our customers understand or our prospects understand what it is we can do for them. For sure. Well, you know, one of the, the biggest challenges as it relates to kind of let's call it a cognitive bias that all customers, all buyers have is, is often what's referred to as status quo bias. We're just happy, you know, with the way things are. We don't need to change, right? And, right. and you know, when someone comes out with a newfangled gadget, you know, you're kind of looking at the thing. You're like, I don't really need that. I mean, I, I got this other thing. It kind of solves that problem. And that could be, for example, someone's trying to sell you a technology solution and you're saying to yourself, I got emails and spreadsheets. I, I don't need that thing. And so we just like what we have already, um, even though those things may not be the best solutions for us. And so thinking as a marketer, the question becomes, okay, how do I, if I have a great product and solution, and, and God bless marketing. I mean, I've, I've worked in, in tons of technology companies. I'm a, I'm a big fan of marketing and product marketing. But oftentimes what happens is when we think about how we market, we come back to like the features and functions and benefits and, and, and properties of the thing that we're selling. So we talked about here's the feature list and here's what's new in version 8.0. And, you know, our customers might care about that, but they mostly don't, right? They, they just look at that and it kind of, it's like, right. like bullets bouncing off of Superman. And so the question is, well, how do we break through that armor and speak to them in the language of feelings versus products and features? And that's, that's the biggest shift people need to make. Interesting, the language of feelings. And, and I think you're absolutely right because – There are people, certainly, and when you talk about technology, there are people looking at what we call speeds and feeds and whatever, but most of us don't care about that. We care about what's this going to do for me. Um, And I know if you're probably familiar with Jeffrey Moore and and Crossing the Chasm, and I think probably some of these things we need to be aware of are different depending where you are. So if you're selling to early adopters, they may care about those things, but as we get into more of the general population – uh, sometimes we still focus on how good the product is without saying what's it going to do for you. So that makes sense. It, it's true. We actually used to have Jeffrey Moore, when I was at Salesforce, he would sit in on our uh, our sales kickoffs because he was friends with Mark yeah. Benioff. 
and we would have these discussions all the time. And, and, and having worked at companies at various stages, like when I worked at Salesforce, the great thing is that most people know what Salesforce does. Like it's a thing. There's a Gardner mm-hmm. Magic Quadrant. I don't need to explain to you why you need, for example, CRM. You know that, and I just need to convince you why my thing is the best versus if you're working with an earlier stage or for an earlier stage startup, as I have as well, and you're, you're, you're presenting a solution that doesn't exist. Like no one knows that they should be on the lookout for your thing. You're absolutely right. Like the language and the, the tactics and approach you have to use are completely different. Help, not only wrap your, help your customers wrap their head around what it is you do, but attract the right customers. Because that's ah. part and parcel of what we do in marketing as well, is try to attract the right customers, not just anyone. You're absolutely right because we can spend a lot of time on customers that aren't good for us. So they either they aren't going to sell, or we're not going to sell them. They're not going to buy, or even worse, they buy from us and they suck all the energy out because they're not profitable customers. So that's that's important. That's I think it's to know right away. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, a lot of times we do in marketing and sales as well. It's kind of like we hold up a lightning rod, right? Like the idea is. We don't want to have to, you know, kind of, you know, cast a wide net and kind of pull back all sorts of customers and sift through them. Some might be tire kickers, time wasters. Some might be interested, uh, and they just don't know it yet. Like, that's a lot of work for us. And so what we want to do is we want to say and do things that kind of act as a lightning rod and get more of those, like, 8 out of 10 customers rather than the 2 out of 10 customers who, who don't really understand what we do and aren't in, our, and aren't in the market for our solution. Absolutely. Uh, and and I, think, I think you're absolutely right. And so that brings up the idea we now are in a position where we have uh, a generational type of thing, where we have some younger professionals that are trying to sell or market to an older, more experienced buyer. Um, and there may be some bias there on the part of, of both the, the buyer and the seller in terms of, uh, gee, what do they know they're young or what do they know they're old? So how, well, what are some of the challenges that you see when that kind of generational thing comes along? Absolutely. Well, actually, I have a, a term for it. I call it experience asymmetry. And oh, I talk about it in my book. Yeah, actually, I wrote an article about it um, in Harvard Business, uh, you know, last year. And it was so popular that I, when I wrote my book, I included, you know, a lot more content around it. And, and what I refer to as experience asymmetry, I call it, you know, when a younger, less experienced buyer, customer, sorry, a younger, less experienced seller is trying to convert an older, more experienced buyer whose job they've never done. And if you look mm. at any sales force, it could be an age gap for sure, yeah. but if I look at any sales force and I say, raise your hand here, who's done the job of the, the C-level executives that you're calling on? Like hardly <laughs> anyone. Like if you, would, no. if you weren't, you'd be a C-level executive. And so there's always that imbalance. And so this actually manifested for me a, a lot. So when I was at Salesforce, I was running small business sales for the eastern U.S., and I would have sales reps in a bunch of different cities and they were all young, and of course they're calling on more experienced buyers whose job they whose job they've never done. And I would have these reps, reps, especially in New York City, who were very. They had a lot of hustle. They would often, you know, have the most calls, the most activity. But every now and then, I would have a rep that would have tons of activity but no pipeline. And so I would start listening. You'd, yeah, you'd start listening to their phone. You're like, okay, well, like, why is that? Like, why is there lots of activity, no pipeline? And you would start listening to their phone calls and. You would hear that their tone of voice was was such that they felt that they were bothering the customer. I'm like, I would listen to these calls and I would say, it sounds like you're bothering them. Like it sounds like you feel you're bothering them because who the heck are you to have any credibility with this customer? And you know what? Like in the back of the customer's head, they're thinking the same thing. Who's this kid? 
And what are they going to teach me about my business? And so it's a very yeah. real yeah. thing. Wow. So how do you get beyond that? I mean, certainly tell them not to bother the customer, but if I've never had the experience that you have as a buyer, how do I how do I kind of uh, emote or connect with the buyer without saying, hey, I, I know what, exactly what you've been, you've been through because I don't? For sure. Well, one of the things I talk about is this idea of credibility. And one of the reasons why, as a younger, less experienced seller, you're always kind of thinking in the back of your head, Who's this, why is some, this person going to listen to me? Because you lack credibility. And I joke and I say, like, unless you're Oprah or, like, uh, Barack Obama, like, you know, no one, you don't have credibility. Okay? No one cares what you think. Right. You're thinking about when you're, you're trying to connect with a customer, who has credibility? So, for example, I don't care how old you are. You could be fresh out of school. Things that have credibility. So, for example, um, research, case studies, articles published in, you know, in, 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 in prestigious journals and, and publications and so on. Um, your customers and their stories. So, for like the, a simple tweak that I tell young sellers to make is instead of saying I, start saying we. What oh, we found, what our, yeah, what our customers have found. There was a study in Harvard Business, and what they found was don't make it about you because no one cares what you think. You have no credibility. Make the credibility – you put that credibility on those who have it and invoke that in your sales motion. That's one of the ways that you can overcome that experience asymmetry gap. That's fantastic. That's a great thing to think of. So here – let me think about taking this one more step which is um, we tell people you should be selling the value. You shouldn't be just selling a product, but value what we can do for you. And yet that doesn't always work. Why does selling the value kind of get people stuck in, in some places? Absolutely. Well, this is like a, this is a, a big thing, which is a lot of sales and marketing teams go out there and they tell their teams to sell value. And really what they're saying is they're saying sell ROI, sell the return on investment, sell them that, hey, look, if they invest money with us, it will either make them more money or save them more money in the long run. Go sell that. But the reality is, like, that's not how people buy because that ROI is a, uh, is a an objective statistic, right? Like, it's either you have ROI or you don't. But right. value is a subjective feeling. So, like, if you think, Linda, something that you spend money on, then another person would look at and say, that's ridiculous. I don't understand why yep. she's spending money on that thing. Right? We all have those things. And if I were to say, like, where did you go on your last vacation? What was the ROI of that? Right? And you're like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I believe that there was ROI. Like, I felt good afterwards. But I'm like, okay, so you went to Florida, but you could have gone to, you know, Myrtle Beach. Like, that would have been a less expensive vacation. Why didn't you choose that? Or why did you order right. that for lunch versus that? So all of the decisions that we make are actually not rooted in a hardcore ROI, they're rooted in a feeling. And and don't kid ourselves, even in B2B and technology and whatever space you're in, we buy feelings, right? That if we yep. didn't, then there wouldn't be review sites and reference calls and the whole thing. And so when I when you say sell value, what a lot of sellers are saying is like sell the ROI, but in reality people are buying feelings. That's what you should be selling. Absolutely. I, I think you're absolutely right. And too often we say, here, here's the ROI and, and that may not be the corporate objective may not be my personal objective, which and, and there may be, you're right, other things going on. So if we shouldn't be selling value, and, and when we're talking about what we're selling as marketers, we obviously have to give salespeople the, the tools to be able to sell correctly. Um, should we be selling solutions, um, or does selling solutions not work either? If you ask me, my, my preference <laughs> is to always sell the problem. 
fall in love with the problem because the solution can change. And when you think about it, like, what's the purpose of marketing? What's the purpose of selling? It's to drive interest. It's to get a customer to lean in and say, yep. well, this is interesting. Yeah, tell me more. Like that same thing right. with copy editing. Like, you know, and so the idea is if I leave with features and functions or even benefits, right? Like if I say, hey, how would you like to increase your sales by like 30%? Like, well, of course, everyone's going to say yes. But that doesn't mean that you can solve the problem that I have or that I even know there's a problem, right? And so the idea is to lead with the enemy rather than even the, the benefits or solutions. So, I mean, I, I'll give you an example. In my third startup, we provided a – we were actually acquired by Salesforce. That's how I, I got to work there. Ah, okay. But we, we – we provide a solution. It was a we call it a social performance management. And so instead of doing performance reviews at your company, this was a way for people at work to get lots of ongoing feedback, coaching, and recognition about how they were doing. So that makes sense. That seems like a good solution. But what we did was we learned over time that to lead with the enemy. So the enemy wasn't like better engagement or more feed. Wouldn't you like more feedback about your team? Like no one cares about more feedback. But if we started to lead with the enemy and we realized that the enemy was a little process that the companies ran once a year called the annual performance review. And people were actually used the word hate to describe performance. Mm. <laughs> I'm yeah. not here to crap on performance reviews you do your company. But so we, what we led with was a very polarizing message. And we said, you know what? Here's what we do. People love feedback. They hate performance reviews, right? You could say right. uh, men, love to, men love to dress well, but they hate to shop. We solve that problem. Right. And so – and so, like, I'm speaking the language of the problem, not of the, the benefit or the solution, and it's going to get your customers disproportionately to lean in and say, this is really interesting. Tell me more about this. So when you say fall in love with the problem, it, it, it's, you know, focus on the problem as opposed to the solution. The problem is I hate performance reviews. I hate shopping. I, you know, I, I can't get this to work. And then once the, the customer or the prospect starts nodding their head saying, yes, that's it, then we come back and say, now let's figure out how to solve it. Is is that sort of what you're saying? That's right. They lean in and they say, well, well tell me more. And actually, you yep. see this all the time in like infomercials. You know, God bless infomercials. You're seeing <laughs> you see an infomercial for like you know like sharp knives, the miracle blade. Yep. Like, how, how do they start? They start out by showing you someone trying to cut you know a tomato for whatever reason in a white suit, and it explodes all over them, and they're like, this is horrible, right? Like, they're showing you the problem. <laughs> Right, And if you have that problem of dull knives, then you're going to lean in and you're going to say, tell, tell me more about this. Well, what is it, right? And you don't even know what it is. Maybe it's maybe it's not a new kind of knife. Maybe it's a new kind of knife sharpening set. Who knows, right? But right. they start with the problem because the problem draws you in. Absolutely, absolutely. So to kind of follow up on that, um, we see a lot of things now about experience being the product. So, uh, you know, people are trying to sell experience and create these amazing experiences which in this day and age are now being done virtually as much as, as in person. How does that tie into this? How does creating the experience relate to loving the problem? Yeah, well, look, you know, customers buy experiences all the time. You know, when you spend money on a nice restaurant or you go on a vacation, uh, you buy a, a certain kind of car, you know, you, you know, the, for example, you might even buy a commodity product. You know, oftentimes I ask people if you wanted to buy an iPad, where would you go? You can go to the Apple store or you can go to like some big box electronics store. And like, where, where do you want to go? Right? People say, I want to go to the Apple store because it's cool and it's nice and I like the experience. In fact, it's funny. I had to buy a, uh, an iMac for my business about a year ago 
and I had to configure it in a certain way because I wanted more memory and the whole thing. And right. So I couldn't just walk into a store and buy it. I had to order it, and then it, they shipped it to my house. And it was a little disappointing, quite honestly. Like, <laughs> I was looking forward to going, going to the to, store. You wanted yeah. to pick up the, the system and take it to the store and get one of the geniuses to help you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted that. I wanted to walk out with the box, you know. Even yeah. when you see people walking around the mall with, like, the Tiffany, you know, the Tiffany yeah. bag and the, the Robin's Egg Blue, like, people buy that stuff, right? And so when I we talk about, like, buying experiences, the experience, you, you know, transcends the product. In fact, I often say that the, the experience is the product. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't matter if, you, you know, you're buying a commodity product or a vacation or a piece of technology. Everything that gets wrapped around that buying experience from how you interact with the sales or marketing person, how their website looks – references you get, the support afterwards, you know, that all feeds into the experience, and that's what people are buying. So how does that relate to the world we're in today when we have to experience things kind of from a remote basis? So certainly I can't go to Disneyland and experience it. I can't even go to the Apple store and experience it. But (laughs) how can we build an experience in this type of environment? Well, look, you know, oftentimes the experience starts with just the small things. Uh, For example, uh, you know, uh, empathy. And, and it's interesting, you know, talking about marketing, and I have, um, you know, some of my clients are in, like, the marketing technology space, and they've said, with what's going on now with the pandemic? You know, when the first, when the pandemic first hit, everyone was just kind of confused. Like, well, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed right. to act? Am I, I just pretend like everything's normal now? And like, okay, well, I can't. And then they realized quickly, well, I can't do that. And then so everyone started kind of pivoting to, like, these very, empathetic messages and they were actually one of my clients was telling me how you know I, I won't mention the name but you know one of these big national brands you saw how almost their tv commercials like lagged behind even a week or two mm. and, and here's the, like, the amazing thing with the situation we find ourselves in now is moving so fast that you know if you watch a commercial on tv and there's like a marketing message in there you can tell whether that commercial is like timely or whether that's so two weeks ago almost in terms of things we cared about <laughs> You know, you know you're absolutely right. You say, well, why are they doing that? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and we also see, I don't know if you've seen it where you are in Canada, but um, interesting commercials is the one from Uber where it kind of shows a bunch of things and then says, thank you for not riding with us now. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Yes. That's just the opposite. But it's saying, hey, we care about you and, and you know, it's okay and you'll come back. So, uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen that, that but I, I'm seeing a lot of those types of things now. I have. I mean, there's a lot of that what you would call counterintuitive marketing, like uh-huh. an ad for for Subaru, and it says, you know, we we were going to use this spot to share all these great, you know, things about our cars, but instead we're just going to, you know, give a shout out and thank you to the frontline workers. And like, this, these are good things, right? But, they're good. You know, yeah, absolutely. They're good, yeah. and, but and, but then like, what's going to happen is in a couple of weeks we're going to be done with that, right? And then we're going to move on to something else, and so. One of the things is, you know, today is, is around agility and how do you create that experience? You create that experience by having like a timely message, right, and, and reacting appropriately for kind of, you know, what's going on. For example, let's say now someone were a you know, marketing organization salesperson reaches out to you and acts as though nothing has changed, everything is normal. You would be like, hold on, are you out of touch with reality? And your experience, <laughs> exactly. your experience would be damaged, right? Yeah. Versus a company who's reaching out with, like, a timely message, who understands your business and says, hey, you know what? I know in your particular business nowadays I speak to lots of people like you. I mean, look, I'm, I'm here on the webcam chat with my cat on my head and my baby on my lap. 
and the, you know this is life like that's part of the experience that human yeah. experience that we're all sharing right so there's a huge opportunity to create these great human experiences in the situation we find ourselves in that is fantastic. We're talking here with David Premier. David is the author of Sell the Way You Buy, and his company is Cerebral Selling. David, if people wanted to find out more about you, where would they go? Yeah, well, look, the easiest way is just go to my website, which is CerebralSelling.com, and I actually give away um, almost all my content for free, so articles, videos, um, you can find everything from there. I have a YouTube channel also called Cerebral Selling, and the book is called Sell the Way You Buy, which you can find on Amazon or wherever you order books. Fantastic. So one last piece of advice to marketers who and, – and I feel as a marketer that we don't spend enough time talking to people who understand the sales process because we just push things over the wall, right? Here it is. Go off and sell it. But as a marketer in today's world, um, what would you, you – know, what kind of advice would you give to marketers from your experience kind of in the front line with, with salespeople? What's the one thing we should do now? What's going on? You know what? This is my advice now, and it, it's the same. No matter, You could have asked me a year ago. I would have said the same thing, which is just be human. Right? Mm. I think one of the challenges in modern sales and marketing is that when we go out and we interact with clients, we use words and terms and catchphrases that are inconsistent with how we would speak to another human being. And it actually makes it very difficult for people to engage with us, engage with our brand, it sounds very um, salesy and marketingy, and in this day and age, people with there's so many distractions and there's so much choice. If you kind of put on this different persona and you start talking like a machine or a, a marketing <laughs> engine instead of yep. a human, people are going to be automatically desensitized and tune out. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, we've all seen that. That's fantastic. David, we could talk for hours, but I um, really enjoyed, uh, enjoyed your, your perspective here. And uh, I encourage people to go check out all those resources on your website and the book if they're interested. And thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Linda. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, this is Linda Poppy. Until next time, thank you for listening to Marketing Thought Leadership. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Marketing Thought Leadership, brought to you by L2M Associates. If you'd like to find out how you can improve the return on your investment in marketing programs, processes, or people, contact us at www.l2massociates.com.